When we come to think about the relationship between God and human beings, there are a number of different models that people use. One such model is mutual backscratching. This approach is common for those who believe that there are many gods. In the world of polytheism, there are lots of different gods, and each god has its own area of control and power. For example, in ancient Greek religion, Zeus is the god of the sky, Poseidon is the god of the sea, and Ares is the god of war. And in the world of polytheism, the way that it works is that you go to the temple of the particular god that you want something from, and you begin by first giving that god the kind of thing that that god wants. You scratch the god's back, as it were. You might offer a sacrifice to that god. You might give money to the temple of that god. You might engage in some religious ritual that will please that god. And then maybe that god will give you what it is that you want. You scratch the god's back and he will scratch your back. For example, suppose you want to go on a trip overseas and you want to have a nice straightforward journey without any delays or storms or even shipwrecks. For this you need the help of the god of the sea, Poseidon. But before he'll give you what you want, you first have to give him what he wants. And so you go to the temple of Poseidon and offer him a sacrifice or make a donation to the temple or carry out some ritual, all the while hoping that in return Poseidon will ensure that there are no storms and you have a good trip. In other words, you scratch the god's back and then hopefully the god will scratch your back. It's tit for tat. Whilst this approach is common in the world of polytheism, what would it look like in the world of Christianity? What would it look like for a Christian to think that their relationship with God is, you scratch my back, I scratch your back? It's going to be quite a mechanical relationship. <coughs> you do X, and as a result, you'll expect God to do Y. For example, if you are a good person, then you will be happily married. If you are kind to others, then you'll not get Alzheimer's. If you work hard, then you will not lose your job. If you say your prayers, then your children will turn out okay. Tit for tat. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. Is that how we're to relate to God? And if not, how is the relationship different? As we move on into the more unfamiliar parts of the book of Genesis, it's easy to lose our way and to see how the whole thing fits together. And when we lose our way, we can tend to do the only thing we can think of doing, and that is to moralise. We treat each new tale as an Aesop's fable. Be like Abraham and believe God. Don't be like Abraham and sleep with your maidservant. Genesis 14 ended on a high note. Abraham's victory over the Mesopotamian kings begins the fulfilment of the Lord's promise to make Abraham's name great. But aware that he is childless, Abraham is now thinking along the lines of substituting his servant Eliza for any promised heir. Chapter 15 verses 2 and 3. God rejects his request and directs Abraham's gaze to heaven and the innumerable stars that represent his countless children, verses 4 to 6. 
He finally believes God's promise, and this act is counted as a righteous deed. The promised seed will come. With the promise of a great number of children, the promise of land is also in view. A great number of offspring are going to be required are going to require a living space. The question of land is brought up by a question from Abraham. He has been dwelling in the land for a number of years and wonders how and when he will possess it. At this point, God makes a covenant with the patriarch by means of a sacrificial ritual. <coughs> the ritual itself can strike us as bizarre, but it reflects how covenants worked in the ancient world. In such a ritual, animals were slaughtered, their carcasses were divided, and the parties of the covenant swore to a pledge, in this case the granting of land, between the dismembered animals. The two parties of the covenant will walk between the divided animals as if to say, may this be done to me if I break this covenant, may I be torn apart, may I be cut in half. The slaughtered and divided animals graphically illustrate the consequences of covenant violation. It would seem that this is what's going on when Abraham prepares the animals. Having prepared the animals, Abraham falls into a sleep and has a vision of God. God explains that the possession of the land will be delayed for 400 years, verse 13. Abraham's descendants will become slaves in a land not their own, will be delivered and will later possess Canaan, verse 14. And this is because the Canaanite sin is not yet ready to be judged, verse 16. This promise of blessing to Abraham and curse for the Canaanites is reminiscent of what we read back in Genesis chapter 9. Of Noah's blessing of Shem and curse of Canaan after the flood. In Abraham, the divine goal for history has been worked out. God then passes through the animal segments as a blazing fire. God is not human, so is not in a position to walk with Abraham between the animals in Genesis 15. And so a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared. The firepot and the torch are something to represent the presence of God. And it's these that passed between the pieces. It's then stated that God made a covenant with Abraham, verse 18, ensuring that the land would be given to his descendants. As a result, God curses himself if the descendants do not possess the land. But here is a surprise. We might expect both Abraham and the firepot to move between the divided animals, as if to say, may this be done to either of us if either of us breaks this covenant. But neither Abraham or anything representing Abraham moves between the animals. God moves down between the animals all by himself. In other words, the agreement is not symmetrical. God takes the full responsibility for the fulfilment of the covenant all by himself. <coughs> Despite such assurances, Abraham and Sarai remain childless and so decide to take the matter into his own hands. With their backs to the wall, they feel pressed to take the initiative in order to bring God's promises to pass. In Genesis 16 verse 2, we learn that Sarai gives her maidservant Hagar to Abraham and it is Hagar who gives him a son, Ishmael. However, things don't go too well. 
and we're led to believe that Ishmael is not going to be the promised son. This is confirmed in Genesis chapter 17. In chapter 17 verse 18, Abraham prays to God that Ishmael may be the one. It's a strange prayer really that comes out of his response of amazement that Sarah should have a child, even though she is now 90 and he is 100. What is God's reply? Genesis 17 verse 19. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. God's reply is simultaneously yes and no, knowing that Ishmael is not the child that God will establish his covenant with. But yes, God will give special blessings to Ishmael because of Abraham's prayer. All of this contributes to the greatest theme that it is God alone who takes the initiative in the great turning points in the story of the Bible. If you think back to Genesis 12, 1-3, it wasn't Abraham who said to God, God, how about we make a plan to get your creation back on track? I'm happy to head it up if you'll supply the land and the blessing. Is that what happened? No, it was God who took the initiative and called Abraham and gave him the promises. And it is God who will provide Abraham with a son. It's interesting, although God squashes Abraham's plan to provide a son for himself through Hagar, it must be said that God lets Abraham down very gently. He counters Abraham's plan with a magnificent plan of his own in the provision of Isaac. Whilst it must be stressed that it is God who takes the initiative, it doesn't mean that his people are left without any obligations. These obligations uh, will later be spelt out in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. And next week in Genesis 18, we'll see Abraham's obligation to direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the law by doing what is right and just. Genesis 18 verse 19. But here the obligation is given in terms of circumcision. Let's read again from Genesis 17 verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you should be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. God will be the God of Abraham and his descendants. God will secure the land for them and guarantee that entire nations will spring from him. The new name, Abraham, demonstrates this forcefully. Abraham is to be the father of a multitude, the father of many nations. What is in view here is not just a new nation, but a new humanity. This, of course, makes connection uh, to Genesis 1. God's creation purpose. All this seems too much for Abraham. Previously, he had been promised that he would be the father of a great nation. Now he has been promised that he will be the father of a multitude of nations, and he still has no children. 
And so he pleads again with God to accept Ishmael as a seed of promise. God says no. And to ensure that Abraham will never forget the outrageous promise, he must name his firstborn Isaac, meaning he laughs. For their part, Abraham and his descendants are to keep the covenant. They maintain allegiance to God and they're to seal their acceptance of the covenant with the act of circumcision. And that's precisely what he does. Chapter 17 ends with, On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or brought with his money every male in his household and circumcised them, as God told him. In other words, God gives not simply a promise, but a covenant with obligations. We began by considering a particular type of relationship between God and human beings, that is, mutual back scratching. If you scratch my back, then I'll scratch your back. But as we look at the relationship that God has with Abraham, we can see that it's very different. Abraham isn't seen calling on God, but God appearing to Abraham. God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who writes his own agreements. And God is the one who takes full responsibility for the fulfilment of them. And this, of course, makes perfect sense when you recall how the book of Genesis begins in chapters 1 and 2. The problem with the mutual backscratching model is that it presupposes that God has needs. It assumes that we have something to offer him, something that he needs and therefore wants. That may well work in the world of polytheism, when the gods are all finite and therefore have needs. But what are you going to offer a god who has no needs? Suppose you deal with a god who is the uncreated creator. What are you going to offer him? He has no need of us. Rather, we have need of him. For he gives, for he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And so as we move on further in the book of Genesis, we're not to forget God as he has first revealed himself to be. As we continue on in the book of Genesis, we don't move into a system where humanity learns to barter with God in order to get on. Rather, we're seeing the uncreated creator sovereignly work out his creation purpose through human history.